You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones and A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser mics at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read the following statement. Jennifer from Illinois called in with this question. On the Signal to Noise episode featuring the best roasted duck recipes, Chris Leonard said I should add two tablespoons of curry powder. Did he in fact mean two teaspoons? Well, Jennifer, judgment of any system exists in an irrational or metaphysical or at least epistemological contradiction to an abstract phenomenological empirical concept such as being. That's usually the notes I get when I'm mixing. Okay, whatever you just did, never <laughs> just do that, that again. again. <laughs> yeah. That's what we say after every podcast. Uh, oh, oh, boy. Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast on ProSound Web. We have other awesome shows on the ProSound Web podcast network. Apparently, you're supposed to give the other shows on your network a shout out. Something I didn't know because I don't actually listen to any podcasts. Definitely uh, but here we are. Nope, I don't even listen to ours. Um <laughs> I'm Michael Lawrence. Uh, going the extra mile this week, Chris Leonard is actually joining us from the hospital. Him and his wife just had a baby, and that didn't stop him. Oh, no. uh, nope. Can't stop him. <laughs> Kyle's eye hurt, so he's not here by comparison. He's like, my eye's a little sore. Uh, so, so Kyle's not here. Um, and let's see, Willow was supposed to be with us. She's also not here. She had a gig, so that's a good reason. So really, like, I don't know. I, you really set the bar, Chris, because if, like, having a child, you know, and you're still showing up, Kyle's eye hurts a little bit. I mean, you, you, know, you did say I'd be say. the last man standing, so I'm still I'm, That's true. I'm, I'm that's true. That, and, I, yeah. and I think that's true. And uh, when I told my mother that you and your wife had a baby, she said, oh, is that the guy with the radio voice? And I said, yeah, that's him. <laughs> so... Uh, so uh, actually, I think second time now as a our sort of ringer guest co-hosts, Mr. Kevin McCoy. I mean, it sounds to me like I was more like your seventh or eighth choice co-host from the story you were just telling. <laughs> Everybody that was on the calendar for this actually didn't show up. You were my, you were my. Keep you up the, the good work. Hitter, Next you know? time you'll be choice number six. Yeah, <laughs> you got. It. You got to earn it. You got to get some seniority. And and Hannah Goodine is here. Uh, actually, freshly graduated uh, college audio program graduate. Now a full fledged professional audio oh, engineer. Thank you for the applause. Hannah, thank you for being here as well. Mm. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, before we before we get to, before we get to our guests. Uh, I think they're still trying to figure out how they want to be introduced. Um, arm's length game. Chris Leonard, we're going to come back to you. I know you're trying to run the clock out on it. So, Hannah, oh what's the coolest thing you have with an arm's Usually length? Usually I prepare. This week I have a badass button. And you've actually been on the show before, so. <laughs> um, yeah. If I press the button, it... it... Oh, nice. It actually, it's the button that says it's literally a badass button, yeah. Badass button. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. Kevin? Uh, 
I have um, I have right above me here is a, a piece of art that my sister made that is a whole bunch of hotel keys from my time on the road cut up and formed into uh, the shape of my two favorite rockets because I like space. Um, and it's pretty cool. Wow. That sounds really cool and creative and has space. So it's really it's like a triple triple threat. And and with my travel. So, yeah, it's perfect. Yes. All right, I have, I'm going to go with, um, actually, I got new in-ear monitors. I'm really stoked about these. Uh, the, the folks over at JH um, did a really good job with these, and they're really comfortable. Um, so I'm going to go with that. Thank you to JH for, for taking good care of me. And uh, I hear the show and the distorted built-in webcam microphones with stunning clarity. Um, <laughs> so thanks to that. Uh, Chris Leonard. Coolest thing within arm's reach. You were hoping your baby would be brought back to you. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I need, I need a few more minutes. We can move on. We'll okay. come back. We'll come back to my arm's length. <laughs> Wait, is the okay. arm's length game really just an excuse to to like to push new audio gear? I could have like, I don't know. I have a I have an RTM. I a baby is not audio gear, Kevin. I well, it could be. Who hasn't made a, a crying baby <laughs> with an IEM in a small speaker on stage? That was right? beautiful. Beautiful mm-hmm. had the um, yeah yeah had a baby with a speaker in it that somebody <laughs> carried across the stage. Uh, we have twin twin guests tonight. Dual, I still say dual guests. I wouldn't call them twins. Um, That'd be a pretty severe insult, there, Michael. Yeah, and a, a, a little bit wishy washy on the titles. But we have two two theater sound professionals. Uh, we have Daniel Lumberg, who has just simply has to be introduced as a sound person from New York who apparently worked on a high school play one time. Um, his credits include Jagged Little Pill, Dear Evan Hansen, uh, Hamilton and Peggy Tour, Book of Mormon, and Mike Tracy, who's a production sound mixer. Um, and I wrote another title down, but I can't read my own writing, so that's all you get, Mike. No worries. Uh, your credits include Jagged Little Pill, also um, Beautiful, Carol King Musical, War Paint, and Avenue Q. Um both folks I've learned a lot from, and I'm happy to finally get them both on the show. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for having yeah. us. I'm yeah. uh, impressed it took 100 and some episodes to hit the bottom of the barrel. It did. I actually, I went through my uh, entire email context list, and I said, who haven't I had on the show yet? That uh, We couldn't think of anybody. Um, so, <laughs> so, so here we go. Well, they're sorted by skill, not by <laughs> alphabet. <laughs> you guys are actually in the same place. But, I don't think we've ever had that before, except for Paul and Courtney, but they're married, so that, that doesn't count, I don't hmm. think. Um, yeah, we're work married. Uh, awkward uh, for you to broach that subject, but <laughs> check back with us in a year. <laughs> Wait, he's on one knee. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, huge fan of the podcast, especially during this pandemic. I think, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from your different guests in different fields, and uh, it's an honor to be here. So thanks for having us. Well, that, that's that's great. And actually, there's some you told me some funny story a long time ago about you telling Mike to listen to the show and he saying that he didn't want to and then later him trying to recommend the show to you and not realizing it was the same show or yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if i said i didn't want to but i probably gave my my canned answer that daniel knows i'm like oh yeah absolutely and daniel knows that means eh, he's probably never going to listen to it but the pandemic has been so long and, and so much fun that i <laughs> looped back around and i found it and i went oh this is great hey daniel you should listen to this podcast so, uh, uh, nailed it. I have no recollection of any of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because 
I would, you know, when you take those, the, you take the, uh, I'm going to call them the Dunning-Kruger surveys, and they're like, how would you rate your own knowledge of these? But like, you know, what we found is most people rate their own knowledge of things above average, which is obviously impossible. So that's, you know, that being said, I would rate my knowledge of theatrical sound practices much improved over where they were, uh, I'll say, 18 months ago. Um, and I've actually, uh, two people called me to do theater sound gigs in the last couple of months. So now I can actually go and apply these things that I've learned from um, harassing all of you over and over again with these things. So I want to talk about some of that and some of the stuff that I'm sorting out right now. Um, I, I also want to talk about um, pursuit of knowledge. You're both relatively young folks and you have great big resumes that people can go to your websites and see. And so, um, you know, how do you continue learning and challenging yourself and how did you kind of find your way into this and, and what, um, you know, what did you use to sort of bolster your skill set? All right. Well, I can, that's I like can go five first. questions in one, so you can answer them in any order you please. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so I moved, I got my start in theater sound, I think probably in high school or college. Uh, I didn't really know theater sound existed fully until I moved to New York. Uh, and I kind of just chose to move to New York because I, I saw In the Heights uh, right before it closed. Uh, my dad took me up to New York and I was like, oh, man, theater sound is actually pretty cool. And there seems to be a lot going on. Um, so I, that's kind of how I fell into that's how I got here, I guess. Uh, you know, kind of moved here, maybe ill advised, moved here without a job and just kind of started calling people until they were just so annoyed that they gave me a little bit of work here and there. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but as far as uh, ways to keep challenging yourself and doing stuff like that, you know, uh, always doing, you know, new jobs or, or uh, you know, the, the coolest thing about sound in general, but specifically theater sound, is there are so many jobs to do. You know, there's so many different roles you can play. There's so many just different things that go on. And I've just tried really hard to never box myself into like, well, I, I do this, you know, I've, I definitely enjoy mixing, uh, more than anything right now, but at the same time, like designing's fun, doing production's fun, you know, all these different things. So yeah, I, I think, you know, just, just uh, my method is, is never saying no, you know, if somebody's like, Hey, can you do this thing? Yeah, of course I can. And then I f furiously call Daniel and say, Hey, how do I do this thing? Um, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's most of it. It's just con constantly, uh, well, it, I guess, sorry to, to pivot a little bit. The other thing that, you know, is, you know, I've run the longest I've ever run a show is about a year. So I'm, I'm pretty sure like Kevin, you've probably run a show longer than a year, like a single show over and over. Yeah, I did two and a half years with once. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kevin would be a better expert at this, but you know, I found running shows, you know, the longest I've done is about 11 months. And I've found that like, you know, in that constantly trying to find the way to make the show sound better, whether it's just grabbing that one little ad lib that somebody's doing that you, you got to really like, you know, or finding different ways to, you know, make the show better, trying something new. And when I say trying something new, I mean, you know, bump the band at, you know, zero versus bumping them at minus three and then going, Whoa, you, you nope, that's not it. Don't do that ever again. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, because the cool part about theater sound and mixing every night is we notice every little detail, you know? Um, and so I guess, I guess that's how I kind of challenge myself and, and really just 
anytime anybody calls with a gig, you know, whether it's big, whether it's small, whether it's something I've done before, whether it's something I've never done before, I'll always try to say yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I guess I guess that's me. You and I have had similar journeys that are, are both uh, a bit atypical, but we both um, came to New York first rather than uh, going on the road and then coming from the road into New York. We both came here. We both started working for different theatrical sound designers, um, and then we both left New York to go on the road. And, and for me, like b before I came here, I'd kind of worked in drafting and consulting kind of in the theme park realm and the new theater realm. Um, but then brought that to, to, I was interested in the technical part of that, but I missed the magic of house to half. And, uh, but I was able to bring that drafting stuff into working as an assistant designer. But then I realized I had no idea how to work with a crew or how the process actually went and that all of the people who I wanted to be like later in my career had toured at some point. So then I let everybody in town know that I wanted to go on the road. I spent a couple of years on the road and came back and kind of started doing more production side stuff and, you know, now do various associate things and, you know, design at a smaller scale. But I think in for just gathering up credits and, and gaining knowledge about different facets of the industry, the, the thing that gives me any right to be a production sound person is that I've been an A2 and I've been an A1 and I've been an assistant designer. And, you know, even though I don't have aspirations of mixing a show for five years, like for me, I like the problem solving. And, uh, you know, once I hit performance number a hundred and put the faders down and go, yeah, that sounded pretty cool from there. It's kind of going backward. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the time I had, mixing and learning about mixing and learning how to maintain a long running show. Uh, for me, it, it's most helpful because it, it help informs how I work with mixers when I'm on shows now. I don't know if that answers your question at all. It does. There's a lot in there that I want to talk about, but first, what's the coolest thing that arms reach? Hmm. And since you're both together, we thought you forgot about us. No, absolutely. you go first. No, you go first. <clears throat> I really like this, uh, floppy disc coaster. Wow. That Daniel has. I, uh, I'm envious. So yeah, floppy disk. It's uh, are you just going through his his belongings right now, <laughs> holding things up? Well, yeah. Anytime we hang out, okay. that's usually what we do. Okay. Um, and then uh, it's it's one point four uh, MBs. I don't know what that means, but uh, it seems cool. Yeah, mighty uh, bigs. I uh, think. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. I got I got a matchbook from the Five Point Cafe in Seattle, and the back of it says, "We cheat tourists and drunks." Hmm. So. First of all, Mike, the, the what I call the sheer belligerence approach, which is like, I'm going to keep bugging people until they relent um, <laughs> and make make the path of least resistance to give me the opportunity that I'm asking for, and then I'll stop bothering you. Um, so it should not be undervalued. And we talk about it a lot. Um, I had this thought the other day, you know, I was seeing on an audio forum, someone said like, you know, I I definitely need, um, they're like, I can't remember the last time I did a show that that I wasn't talking to the processor via Dante. And I said, I was thinking, I can't remember the last time I did a show where I was talking to the processor via Dante. And so it kind of made me think, like, what counts as a real gig? And everyone's all about, well, I don't really feel like I can do this type of work. But you, we've all had our unique experiences, and you're kind of getting good at whatever that is. And so there's a lot of, this is tied in with that imposter syndrome thing, where there's a lot of people who are saying, yeah, I, I've done a lot of theater, but I haven't done any real theater. Like, what does that mean? Like, it's silly, right? We've all done the gigs that we've done. And so when you look at you know, resumes and they have all these different 
you know, uh, and I think for a lot of people that aren't from the theater sound world, like what's an associate, what's an assistant, like what, what are, what's production sound? What are all these roles? Um, Cause the toast terms are, are either not used in, in the concert world or used very differently in the concert world. Um, so there's this temptation to fall into like, um, yes, I've, I've, you know, I've done this for 12 years, but I've never done any real shows and that's completely ridiculous. Um, and I want to caution people against thinking that like their whole career is not valid, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's all theater, right. Or it's all sound, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I'm definitely a, uh, excuse me. I'm a, uh, a sound person doing theater. You know, I, I started in sound. I didn't start in theater. I, I did, you know, rock and roll. I toured with some bands in Nashville, very small bands. I was sleeping on the couch, not getting paid, you know, so like not, not anybody you've heard of, um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, doing stuff like that. And, you know, I think that, I think that's the important thing is, is I, I'm lucky and I don't, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome as much just because I see myself as a sound person. So I'm doing sound, you know, whether you're doing sound uh, for, you know, two people in a room that they just need a little amplification or ambience or whatever, or you're doing, you know, sound for a, you know, 4,000 seat fabulous Fox theater, you know, that's all theater, you know what I mean? Like that's all, you know, people are coming, they're, they're being entertained and they're leaving like you, you win. Whether, whether it's at a high school like Daniel or it's a uh, <laughs> it's uh, wherever it is, you know, you're like, no, it, it totally counts. And, and I guess and, and it doesn't work for everybody. Right. But but yeah, I guess my approach personally is a little bit more, you know, brash and just kind of you get your hands dirty and, and you start working. And as long as you have a good attitude and own when you have a question, you know, my trick is always to say like, oh, yeah, cool, I'll do that thing I've never heard of. Uh, but real quick, how would you do it? You know, like, and it's, it's a total, I'm giving up my secret, but like, that's, it's not that big of a secret. I tell everybody, but the point is, uh, you know, I, you know, that's, that's at least how I get around some of that stuff is if I'm doing something that I've never done before or in a new scenario, which, you know, still happens, you know, I, I definitely am like, Oh yeah, I can absolutely do this thing how would you do it? Just so I do it the way you want it done, you know? Uh, but anyway. Yeah. I, I would love to work on a real piece of theater someday. Um, <laughs> but I, I think even, even on shows that are, uh, I, I guess by comparison, large and in, in scale and budget and, and publicity, like we still walk away from every one of those processes going like, how could we have done this better? Or, oh shit, we're never going to do that again. Um, and so I think, you know, applying the same kind of learning, uh, you, you know, uh, taking really good notes on, on what to do and what not to do is something that continues. And I think that there's uh, a notion of something will be all of a sudden different at a different scale. And that, th th that's not what I've found. Like, when you're working at a, a theater with limited resources, it might be really important to you to have two rolls of gaffer's tape instead of one roll of gaffer's tape. And, you know, you need to work with management to, to realize that need and help them understand the value in the second roll of gaffer's tape. Like when, when you work on a show that's a bit larger in scale, uh, you can buy gaffer's tape by the case and nobody really thinks about that. But you're having conversations about we need three more full-time stagehands and another two trucks. And like the sentiment in those two situations and how you approach them and, you know, whether or not you come out of them getting the best value for the show and still being friends with management is really kind of the same 
at both ends of those, even though it, it's different in scale. So I, I think, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't know that there's real theater and fake theater. I'd love to do real theater sometime. You know, another thing I think is there's, you know, I, I'm viewing all of this through the lens of someone who doesn't do theater, but occasionally gets asked to do it and then has to go in and try not to at least embarrass myself. Right. So um, the cool takeaway for, for me for that was, you know, I had a, a student work study working with me on the last thing I did at, at a college. And it was like, you know, she's seeing, it doesn't matter if you're looking over my shoulder. I mean, like the, you know, you're going to recognize the bits and pieces here and what's happening. And someone, if you go see, you know, someone like all of you who do this at a, at a high professional level, it's going to sound better (laughs) than what I'm doing. But, but the, the, the recipe of what's happening is, is pretty similar. And, and so that's kind of an interesting thing. And I think it's a big help for people who are learning this work and starting to get involved in like, you know, junior high, high school community productions, like that just kind of scales up, but you really can do yourself a lot of good by paying attention to the, to the workflow and paying attention to the best practices, because that stuff is going to just leverage you as you move forward in your career. Kevin is nodding. Well, I wanted to add the, the, so the, <laughs> the question in there though, uh, you, you know, not real theater or, or my question in that was like, well, you know, other than budget, what is the difference between Broadway and either regional theater or touring theater? At the end of the day, my assumption is it's it's like anything else in audio. Signal flow is still signal flow. You still have to cover all the seats. You still have to hit all the cues. You know, you might just have more people, more budget, bigger sets, bigger speak, you know, whatever, right? But it, is there anything inherently different about Broadway, air quotes, uh, versus, you know, uh, any other theater in the world? Oh, okay. Uh, well, like, I think some of the biggest differences that you'll see there is that, you know, uh, you know, a big rock and roll show, right? You're totally right. You're trying to cover all the seats. You're trying to, you know, make sure everybody's hearing everything they need to hear. Not necessarily every seat sounds the same, but everybody's getting the content they need to get. Um, the, the, the biggest difference I found between rock and roll and theater personally is sounds priority level. There, there, there are so many different things you're trying to accomplish in theater sound. And I, and I, I, sound people hate me for saying this, but like, I totally get the idea of you're in the suspended reality where everyone's holding props and they're standing on the stage and then you see a microphone. What's that? You know, like I totally, I, I know everybody hates me. I totally get that, you know, and, and then there's certain shows like, you know, shows we've worked on where you're just owning it. There's a headset mic and it's like, we're not really trying to hide it. We just, the sonic experience is more important than the suspended disbelief that no one's amplified. Uh, so that's, that is the biggest difference I've found you know, is, is you can be like, Hey, you know, lead singer, if you use this microphone and hold it like this, they'll, they don't listen to you all the time, but you can have that conversation and no one else is going to have an opinion about like, well, does, does it look right? It's like, it sounds right. So no one like, like that wins. Right. Uh, and that's the biggest blanket difference I've found with, you know, like theater sound versus, you know, rock and roll sound. But, you know, the, the other thing about like scale and and how big things sound or, or best practices, I think I think a big reason, too, that you'll see a lot of theatrical shows are kind of close to done the same or some of the bus structure is pretty close between designers and stuff like that is we all live together. We're all in the city. You know, we're all looking at each other's stuff all the time. 
versus at least in the little bit of rock and roll I've done, it's like, oh yeah, that person's really good. And, but you never actually work with that person. And I, I experienced this on tour and I think, you know, Kevin, theatrical touring, I think Kevin and Daniel felt the same way. It's like, oh yeah, they're the A1 on, you know, the other tour that's playing Chicago and you just meet them when you play Chicago. You don't hang out like, like, so we don't all get to talk to each other while we're on tour. Um, so just to kind of answer both those questions, like, I think that's the biggest reason in theater though, you see a lot of the same practices versus I, th I think in rock and roll, they can be a little bit different, but you know, there, there isn't the, the one place where rock and roll always happens, you know, versus there's Broadway, you know? Um, so yeah, and Chris, like you said, the goals across any market of theater or any type of show is ultimately, you know, to, to serve the audience and to give the performers and the musicians and everybody else on stage management and anybody else working on the show what they need to serve the audience as well. And so I think the, uh, the parameters in which you're doing that are different, but I think uh, the show any show is more similar than different. And I also think that people who, who tend to work in theater tend to be very passionate about the form. Um, and, uh, because if, if they were bitter about it, they, they wouldn't, um, endure the lifestyle of it, which is something I think we're all very focused on changing as the industry returns. Um, but I, th I think everybody in, in theater sound is, is passionate about, theater and and is is working to serve the production and serve the audience what was the other thing that you said after that that was the touring I, thing i was talking about uh why in theater oh, meet everybody meeting everybody that yeah. was the thing right and so the other thing for us is we all spend a lot of time at these sound shops in new york and most of commercial theater in this country or in north america anyway comes out of one of three sound shops in the new york area and we all have these zones where uh people who work for the producer will go to the the warehouse in jersey and uh you know drop gear into racks and uh label and bundle cable and configure stuff and pack stuff and you you kind of know everybody else on the floor and if there's somebody working on a different show who you don't know you generally like introduce yourself to each other and so everybody across uh uh, all design teams and all levels of theater in New York, we all know each other and it, it's, everybody's very willing to help. There's no proprietary. You don't look at the settings of the, of the C4 on this show, right there. Everybody will, will help anybody else. And we all know each other and we all work with each other. And uh, as um, you know, podcasts like, like signal noise and, and others have come up and as uh, you know, groups like TSDCA have formed and, and as uh you know, there have been conventions about theater sound information that used to only be available if it was passed to you directly from a mixer you were learning under is now pretty readily accessible to people uh, in a way that it wasn't, you know, even 10 years ago. And so I think uh, for that reason, we, we all get to to benefit from each other's successes. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on that real quick, the other thing is I'm, you know, that as we know, there's tons of rock and roll shops and, and things like that. The difference, though, is our show every night is in the same spot. So we all get to prep so many things together, you know, and you get to constantly and say, okay, great. Now I go mix my show, but I maybe took away what I learned from shop prep or different, you know, different things like that. And uh, my other thing is C4, is that dynamite or what, what is this? C it's a four. It's like a composite. It's oh. RDX based with. Oh, okay, great. Cool. Thanks. And you can't have my sex. Oh, okay, great. Got it.
wow, this went in a scary direction. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I ask uh, to for you two maybe to talk a little bit more specifically about, um, uh, you know, Chris and Michael were talking, were asking about sort of the difference between real theater and not real theater or Broadway theater and touring theater and regional theater and that sort of stuff. But uh, I was thinking specifically about mixing because we we've spoken on this very podcast, in fact, a little bit about like the very specific way that we mix on Broadway. Uh, and I was thinking about that a, a lot just in terms of like uh, how we do it, but also how, how it can happen at different levels. Uh, you know, like I, I went and mixed a, a community theater production where I had a day to learn. And so I didn't fully line by line mix, but I partially mixed. And I wonder if, if you two have, can talk about that and the, the various levels of, of detail and mixing. Yeah, I think once you're you're you've bought into the idea that you're going to have the cleanest show with the least phasing and the least background noise and the most game before feedback when you're line by line mixing uh, and and you're on board with that, I think something that that's still true across scales is that you got to walk before you run. Um, so if you're busy learning a complicated sequence that by performance number a hundred, you know you're going to be moving your fingers really, really quickly and only having one mic open at exact know what the performer is going to do before they do it. That's cool. But when you're in tech for that, you might leave all five faders open, at least for that two bars of music, just to see what happens and then work, you know, work towards something neater from there. And if your show is only running for three performances and you don't get it to be perfect, I think you're, you're still starting at the same place and sort of gradually uh, building on it. If, if that, if that answers your question. Yeah, that's great. And and that's something that can happen at all levels, right? Like yeah. like a high school a high schooler who's mixing their first musical doesn't need to perfectly line by line mix, but no. they can still look for a, a a goal on the horizon in that in that sense. Yeah, and and I think it, it goes along the same something we get asked in in theater mixing a lot is like, "Oh, how how quickly do you get off book?" You know, and it's it's like that that question to me personally doesn't mean anything because it nobody cares if you get off book you know and and i and i know i you know I, there's there's other sets where you can you know but no sorry let me rephrase no audience member cares if you're off book or not and if there is some phasing or different stuff like that that is not ideal and by your fifth performance you shouldn't have that but if you only have three performances you know you, not a lot of people are going to notice that you know, again, best practices, you're running the risk of if something happens, everybody noticing, <laughs> you know, if you have multiple microphones open at once, everybody could notice a huge issue that you, you know, highlighted. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I totally, you know, you got to walk before you can run, like Daniel said. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the last thing that I did, and I know that Kevin, you and I talked about this a little bit because I was like, how do I do this? Um, we were doing a thing where it was also going out to live stream. And that's a whole different ballgame because there's zero ambient sound at all unless you choose to affirmatively open a mic. The live stream hears nothing. Um, so that was a whole different thing where I'm paying attention to. I don't want anything to I don't want there to be any moments in the show where nothing's open because that sounds super weird on, on someone listening to headphones and there's a lot of arguing in the show and they were interrupting each other. And, and that was a little bit different every night. And so I, I, there were points where we were like, we're not going to chase this because 
you know, first of all, it was distance, right? So no one's closer than six feet to anybody else. So you're minimizing the potential interaction, but also everyone's definitely going to notice if we clip a line off or they see this person pointing and yelling on the live stream, but they don't hear them. Um, cause the bleed is going to be so little cause they're so far apart. So that was a thing where, you know, we departed from what would be the traditional best practice because that didn't make sense for the show that we were doing. And so I think it's, it's also about, we talk about this all the time, you know, having an understanding of why the technique is done and, and what the benefits are. And then, you know, when does it make sense to, to modify that and, and what goal are we trying to work towards? Yeah, I, I think we've all had to learn a whole lot in the last year as more of our stuff has become live streamed or become filmed and, and uh, you know, think, thinking about loudness. Although if you have an opportunity and you're on a show for a second and you have people in arguments with each other where they're cutting each other off at different times, like if you can figure out the syllable on which they're going to do it, the, the key to make to bearing, uh, the, to covering your tracks is to do the crossfade in the last syllable of the first person talking, right? Because vowels were pretty forgiving about filling in little level deviations. And then you catch the first person's last consonant and the second person's mic and it's already up. And that's that's how you, you know, but but you kind of need to have been on a show for a little bit of time, regardless of the scale of show to, to know what the performers are going to do. But you can get to a point where people are writing each other's faces and you can cover your tracks. And it's really, really satisfying when you know what they're that's the play. that's the finely crafted mixing that you get to enjoy when you've when you've done a show a hundred times yeah right exactly and i think that's the other thing too is you know going into it further let's say that you're you're running a show for a month so you may not get up to 100 performances you know something i always try to do is is personally if somebody's ad-libbing in a different way i'll do like a show or two where i try to grab that different ad-lib and then if i can't I'll go and talk to the performer and say, Hey, listen, I love it. It's, it's hysterical, but I, I can't catch it. it. It's, it's too on top. It's too, and you're right in the other person's face. So, you know, or, or something along those lines or, Michael you know, they're all the way on stage. Right. He tells me, Hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, or, or they're pulling focus, but they're still talking so you gotta, you know, like, so anyway, um, but absolutely, you know, that's the benefit of doing it a bunch of times is you can, you, you get to this great place where you can find, you, you can guess how an actor is going to ad lib, which is just such a cool, uh, again, like the syllable thing. It's just such a cool moment that you get to have as a mixer where you're like, oh yeah, I know what they're going to do. Or, you know, you even get to the next place where you're like, oh, okay. So the audience is kind of acting this way. So, okay, they're really going to give it to me at this moment. And like, you can, you can figure out, you, you can be with the performer and where they're going and where they're taking kind of all of us, you know. I want to get a little bit kind of down my own alley here. Uh, Dana, you mentioned a while ago that on, on Jagged Little Pill, he uh, there's some AB system stuff going on. And I'm a really, you know, as a, as a system nerd, that's a really interesting concept. Uh, and I don't, I don't, we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but um, you don't tend to see it all that much these days anymore. And so I'm really interested in, in kind of any details about how it's being used nowadays. Yeah, I think Mike, Mike could tell you probably more about Jagged's implementation, but I've, well, I guess I, well, you, yeah. you should, you should talk yeah. about the AB I've, system. I've, I've been yeah. lucky that, that I've gotten to work on uh, several AB shows, even though they're less common than they were 20 years ago. And, and I think, you know, listeners who've, who've 
been here the whole time have heard us talk about this a bit, but everybody's familiar with the phenomenon of like, you know, two people talking, one person talking with two microphones open, one on two different people and the, the time difference in person A's mic from person B's mic causing this phasing, right? And that phasing is help happening electronically, right? Uh, things are combining with different time, you know, summing or canceling at different frequencies. And so if you just never combine them, then they can't fight with each other. And not only, uh, I think there's one explanation of A, B speakers where if, if you put person A through speaker A and you put person B through speaker B and they're right next to each other. So it's not like it's a left and a right. The left side of the proscenium has a speaker A and a speaker B and the right side of the proscenium has a speaker A and a speaker B. Then uh, person A's mic comes out of speaker A and person B's mic comes out of speaker B and they don't combine in air actually because waves go through each other, right? They don't actually combine until they hit your eardrum. And uh, at that point, it's in the realm of the, uh, you know, the, the binaural transfer function or, or something, right? You know, our, our brain is able to, to separate these two different speakers out as two different sounds. And so there's no phasing whatsoever. And so uh, it's really, really cool if you're doing a show with a lot of subtlety in it, like, a, a, you know, a, a something um, more like a play or, or uh, something more dramatic because you can leave that person who, who wants to interrupt as, you know, cause their character wants to interrupt the other character who's, who's on the verge of it. Their subtleties are now amplified, right? And you get to, uh, to transport that to the audience. And so, um, you know, as uh, Jonathan Dean's the sound designer on, on Jagged Little Pill, which for reference, you were kind of, I, I, was the advanced person on this and Mike's the, the production mixer, uh, Jonathan Dean's the sound designer. And he describes the show as, as a play that then has Alanis Morissette music in it, right. That's compelled out of the emotions, the characters are feeling in it. But when you're in these book scenes between two characters, there's, there's a lot of emotion in the show. There are a lot of big topics. And so being able to pick up that subtlety and have that naturalism to it really draws the audience in. And I think is part of what compels the, uh, the big moments that the show gets to go to. Um, now there are some logistical challenges of an, of an AB sound system, right? You, you need twice as many speakers. Um, and that both has a cost, but also has a real estate challenge associated with it. So on Jagged Little Pill, uh, we've got, uh, some small speakers, Meyer UP4 Slims as the AB system on the proscenium. And then they're kind of hanging next to these big line arrays that serve the rock and roll aspect of the show. Um, but I've also worked on a lot of shows that John Weston has designed where it will be two trap boxes next to each other on the proscenium. And if it's a Gershwin show, then maybe you don't need the, the headroom afforded by uh, an eight box line array. Uh, wow. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I got a question. So when, when you have that AB system plus a line array, are voices ever at one point in a line array and at one point in an AB system? And, how, and if so, how do you totally match them? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty cool. I, I call the Jagged system an AB-ish system because basically, you know, the, you know kudos to Jonathan. It, it basically, you know, it, we think of it more as a dialogue system and a music system. So we transition between our dialogue system to our music system. Our music system is not AB. It's, it's, and that's where the band lives and that's where uh, singers live in song. Most of the time, you know, maybe there's a, I, you know, there's a few moments where we don't, we're switching back and forth is a little weird, 
Um, so we don't like we just commit to one and stay in it, even if there's dialogue inside the song or uh, maybe a song is it starts off fairly intimate. So we keep them in the dialogue for the dialogue system. So that's kind of how we approach Jagged specifically. And I know Jonathan's done that on other shows as well. Um, so at least on Jagged, though, we, we fully transition, you know, you know, and the, the, the way the music in Jagged works is, is we kind of can kind of you know, do a quick transition. That was a good sound. I felt really good about it. Uh, a quick transition between the two systems. Um, you know, yeah, th- there's this cool moment in the tune ironic in the show where, uh, the, the beginning of it is, uh, you know, Frankie is reading her poem to the class and, uh, is, is, uh, bullied a bit during it. And so that's kind of this fragile moment where the, initially when she's singing, she's in, the the a b dialogue system and then has this a b dialogue scene with with phoenix this other character in the show and when he says you know now are you going to shut these people down or or, should i uh there's a big snare hit and all of a sudden we're in full rock mode and it it just makes sense that the energy of frankie's vocals then in the the uh the music pa um but you know brian shea and jonathan did this great job of of matching the two systems so that even in moments where it is more subtle and you're kind of gradually going into to song, the audience probably isn't, uh, the audience is not aware of, oh, it wasn't that speaker and now it's in that speaker. It's, it's all blended very nicely. Yeah, and, and they did such an amazing job. And then the cool thing of getting the mix on that, you know, uh, night in and night out, is it, it also, it, it builds in a little bit, not a huge, but a little bit of like, you run out of gas in the dialogue system. So it, it, it's almost like a, a really good, limiter you know something that you 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 kind of the the dialogue system makes you keep it intimate because it's just it's totally different pa and it it makes you stay in the moment and then you get to open up and uh so they are extremely well balanced so you as most audience members you never really notice but uh getting to hear it and mix on it every night it's kind of fun to have that you know you can't quite get too big in the dialogue system um, which you would never want to do. So, yeah. Can, can you describe... How, how much go of ahead, the... Go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. I was just going to say, how much of the AB system, uh, how, how far does that extend into the house? Like, are the underbelks still also separate dialogue music, or is, is there a com- combination at some point? No. Uh, Jonathan, we talked about that. It, it, it was both the combo of uh, cost to, and, and real estate, which, you know, as Daniel said, and, um, you know... Jonathan's theory on where do we use AB and where do we not is uh, proximity to the stage. So essentially the proscenium system, uh, this proscenium dialogue system is one thing. And then we have the line arrays as the music system. And that's the other thing. And then everything past that is a single speaker. So the delay ring is uh, 10. Uh, I think they're e- like E3s. 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 Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're 10 E3s for the delay ring and each, you know, they just cover underneath the balcony. There isn't a dialogue and a music E3 or, or not even an AB of those. So it's really the proscenium system. The proscenium dialogue system is AB. And then everything else past that is 
system. The, the other thing that a lot of uh, a lot of your listeners know if they've been to New York is that these theaters in Midtown are actually a lot smaller than uh, the theater in, in their town, right? Like as much as people talk about Broadway, these theaters are between like 700 seats and 1400 seats regularly. I think they're a couple in the 2000 range, but then you go to, to the Fox or something and, and roadhouses are much bigger. So, uh, you know, you, you always have a connection to the stage in uh, a Broadway theater, even if it's a rock and roll show that an acoustic connection to the stage that uh, you might not have as much in other spaces. Uh, so when I was on the road with an American in Paris, we would hang AB under balconies in every city that had a balcony uh, that, that needed coverage there. And, and oftentimes, you know, the theater would have just installed a really fancy new under balcony system that serves its mono road shows really, really well. And we still hung the AB speakers because having uh, having AB extend throughout the coverage area was was important on that show. Um yeah, well, but to the piggyback, I'm curious, how does busing structure work in terms of um, uh, is it matrix fed to AB and then music or is it, I mean, I'm sure it's combinations of buses and matrix. And then how are you making sure that your mix translates in this, like in the, you know, uh, underfills that are mono that are some of both the AB and the music and, and, and that, that. Yeah, I, I think uh, there, there are a few different ways to approach it, and it's a little bit more complicated when you're doing A, B, and music, which is, is a relative rarity. But uh, theater sound uses the matrix in... Uh, we'll, we'll frequently have 32 matrix outputs, right, where you're treating the mix to all of these different little fills in, in corners of the theater uh, very differently. Um, and traditionally, what you do is you have an A bus and a B bus, and as a starting point, you kind of put your... Uh, altos and sopranos in the A system and you put your bass, baritones and tenors in the B system. And then if you, you notice there's a scene where, uh, you know, two tenors are talking to each other, you automate one of them going in BA system for just that scene. And you normally find that the hard way in tech, right? You go, Oh, that's phasing. And then you, you program around it. And then, uh, you have these discrete paths from the mixing consoles matrix to each of these AV speakers. And then you might also have, um, you could approach it a few ways for, for summing AB to a monofill. You could just route uh, both the A group and the B group straight to that fill that's mono. Uh, that's the main way you would do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mike, I sent you a picture of like when I was writing down like how to introduce you and then I went to look at it and realized I didn't even understand what I wrote. Um, so if you can decipher that, you can add to your own job description. That's fine. Turd? Turd. I see turd. It looks. It does look like turd. We'll go with turd. <laughs> okay. Turd's good. T Y R. T Y N. Yeah. Wait, is this is this GSM noise from Mike's phone? Is that what we're hearing? I didn't know that there'd be a test involved with this. It's it's somebody's GSM noise. Wait, is, oh, it, is it mine? It may be me. Hold Am on. I? I'm now in airplane mode. Are you still hearing it? Nope. Incredible. Sorry, G GSM noise. GSM noise in this episode brought to you by Mike Tracy. Do, do we have to do the TSA thing like every time we like get on an episode now? <laughs> like, you know, please plug your headphones in. Please move your phones. Drop your phones. I, think I haven't so. heard GSM noise since like 2014. Yeah, what is that like? A, is that like a flip phone? It's it's a new phone. It's T-Mobile. <laughs> I don't know. I just uh... Uh, they're the ones who took all our spectrum. Yeah. You know, something else that, that I was thinking about when you talk about 
theater sound versus like your typical music concert, the difference in dynamic range is staggering. Um, if you look at, I mean, we can calculate, I'm working on an AES paper now, we're trying to calculate the dynamic range of a live performance like you would uh, a stream, but you have to do stuff like take out the audience noise and take out the, you know, the gaps between the songs. But boil it all down, the, the typical dynamic range of a, of a music concert is, is relatively small. You know, it's it's 10 dB or less, typically speaking. And for a theater performance, typically it's much, much larger. And there are there are moments in shows that you're straining to hear. And then there are moments in shows that are really loud. And, and so you, I see a lot more use of that wide dynamic range. Um, and I think maybe part of that's you have a more controlled environment. In an arena with 15,000 people, there's such a high noise floor that you can't you can't really go that far down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but but that was when you were talking about about the dialogue system and the and the music system. That's something I was thinking of is is, uh, you know, those those really, really quiet intimate moments. Those are those are a lot more rare in a, in a music, uh, at least a rock and roll context. Well, I, I think the story has to compel it. Right. And while it's it's we all talk in terms of SPL and about the tools we're using for it, you know, when you've got uh, th- th- this character revealing their their deepest, darkest secrets or going through something and, and creating empathy, like you, there's no IMAG associated that with that. You want people to lean in and you want it to be a delicate moment. And so I think it, it kind of follows the storytelling that, that we need to do that. And then I think there are also huge moments of excitement in theater where, where, uh, you know, Jack Little Pill's a great example. Um, but, you know, this is like Dear Evan Hansen's a great example of this as well, where the, the show has a huge dramatic arc and uh, really the story compels it, right? Because if, if you as an audience member, like you want it to be louder or you want it, want to lean in. And, and uh, so having systems and controlled environments uh, that let us do that is really great. Um, but I, I don't think it's, a, a, I think it's just about being natural and true to the show. Yeah. And I think the other thing to, to remember as well is, is like, you know, when you're doing theater, you're really focused on telling a story versus a lot of concerts and, and, and music events can have that as well, but it's not quite the same thing. Sometimes I liken it to, you know, your favorite music artist releases these CDs and, and they can be stories or they can be different things, but they release albums and you, but the albums have very little dynamic range as well. And we're not talking about loudness wars. We're not going to dive into all that stuff. But like, you know, in general, if you think about a CD, it, it really doesn't have that much dynamic range versus if you think about uh, like a movie, a movie has huge dynamic range because because you're going on this journey with these characters where it's like, oh, especially my gosh, if what, it's a Christopher Nolan movie, yeah. you know, especially <laughs> if it's a Christopher Nolan movie, it, it, it was detriment. You know, uh, I, again, I think he was just trying to cover that. No one knew what was happening in 10. No one knew. So he's like, we'll just make the dialogue soft. Everyone will be confused. It's fine. Um, but, you know, I guess that's kind of what I think about when talking about that kind of stuff is, you know, it, it's it's so much about the story. And it's why I'm OK with like, you know, OK, we got this version of the show. We really have to hide all the microphones because it's telling the story better. You know, and I think I think that's a big part of that dynamic range difference. You know, so first, what's the CD? Great question. And, and second, um, the, you know, the, the, we talk a lot in, in system tuning or system engineering about making the show sound the same from front to back. 
And if you think about the experience of being in the front row of a Broadway theater or any theater to being in the back row, right, where this person is huge in your field of view compared to to pretty small in your field of view, like it, it's, it would be pretty unnatural for those two things to sound the same. Um, and if that person is, is uh, projected on iMag, then sure, like then what you see should match the iMag that you're seeing. But if you're doing a traditional piece of theater and there's the same amount of 8K in the last row of the balcony that there is in, in the front fill, that, that's actually going to take people out of the story because it's not going to match what they're seeing. So I think, you know, we have the tools to make it sound pretty similar from front to back. But really what we're going for is making it sound good from front to back. And making it sound good in a particular seat may, may rely on it matching what you actually see. And I think there's also, I mean, the question of what's artistically appropriate, even within music, you know, if you think about where I would sit the vocal for like Nora Jones or Diana Krall concert versus ACDC, like if you put the ACDC vocal in the Diana Krall yeah. spot in the mix. One, one vocal you want to hear and the other you don't. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so, a big ACDC fan, but nobody needs to hear that. <laughs> well, it's just, it's not, you know, that would just not be artistically appropriate you know what i mean so so i think that's part of the conversation um here's a thought for each of you and i want i want to hear from kevin as well um what's one thing that you wish you knew when you started your career uh that well, you know now i should, should yeah clarify. uh i can go first i i guess i wish i knew that all these different jobs existed in theater like I, I didn't know that. And, and I, I guess, I guess I kind of wish I did because it would have been, I would have been better educated at coming in and not making such a fool of myself, you know, which, you know, I guess that, I think that's my, my biggest thing is I wish I paid more attention or, you know, cause again, yeah. So there you go. It would have been helpful if I thought of this as a service industry earlier. Um, we have work product that we generate, right? We have technical things and, and uh, you know, we, we have either mixes or we have paperwork or cable labels or whatever we're making that day. But this industry is really about people. It's about the people we're, we're helping deliver a product to. And it's about the people we're working with as we do that. And all of that is so much more important in every aspect of what we do, both in terms of our success, but also just our happiness. Uh, that if, if I, I wish I had, while I like technical things, I wish I'd kind of framed what the industry was about uh, better earlier. If I can just jump on that one real quick. Um, when I started, like, I just finished my freshman year of college and I went and worked at um, a venue that's about an hour from my parents' house where I am right now. And um, one of like I was a stagehand, but there were a lot of interns there and all of the interns were hospitality industry interns working at this concert venue. Um, and that let me realize that fact really fast that this is all about people. It's all about providing an experience to these people and it's not about you know, putting on this concert that I'm excited to put on because I'm this, you know, 19 year old college kid who just wants to make things loud. <laughs> but it's really about, you know, helping put on this experience that people are going to remember going forward. Yeah, totally. 
Absolutely. No, couldn't agree more. Did, did we lose you, Kevin? Are we back? Uh oh. I don't know what's happening right now. Are we all? Are we all here? Am I answering next? I think Kevin. Kevin's gone. Am I alive? Hello. Hi. Can I can, we can hear you. Hi. Uh, wow. Technology. Um. Uh. Yeah. Hi. Uh. Yeah. I. I think that. I mean, Mike definitely took away the the answer that I was going to give. So. Uh, do you want? Do you, seems unfair. Do you want me seems to unfair. give a different answer? And and you will just say that this is Kevin's answer and use my voice though. I really wish I knew yeah. where to set the bandpass sidechain on a gate for a tom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I definitely talk about how, wishing that I had known that mixing was a thing uh, when I started my career because I really enjoy mixing and didn't discover it until I was halfway through my career. But um, the the other thing that I I think I wish I had known when I was younger is just that like people people as they get further along in the industry people are definitely making it up a lot more than than they seem to be. Um, and uh, some people do that in a way that uh, elevates others, and some people do that in a way that uh, elevates themselves. Uh, and uh, I mean, the two of you here, and Chris and Michael, for that matter, matter like everyone here are people that I think elevate others, which is which is great. Um, and I just sort of wish I could go back to that younger Kevin and be like, hey. You know, no one, no one really knows what they're doing, but also be the person that elevates others. You know, from the get go. I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting there, but uh, that's that's tricky. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Kevin. And I think that's that's the whole idea, right? Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to elevate the community, or do you want everybody to be like, whoa, that's an impressive sound person? No, <laughs> you don't want that. It, like, you you want you want the whole community to be elevated. You want everybody to be better at what they're doing. So we can just keep making it that much better. You know, if everybody's really good, then it only gets better from there versus if anyone's trying to hold on to their little piece of the pie is just going to, is that socialism? Oh, crap. You know, season, you know, <laughs> Take it. Well, I'm thinking about, um, and Kevin, some of the stuff you've told me about how some of the, the under the hood tech and programming works on on Hamilton and syncing the drop boxes and loading up different files. And, and my first thought was like, wow, that seems like it would break. But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, this fear of like, you know, it feels like the little kid, like guarding the sand castle, like don't touch my, like it's a sand castle. It's fine. Like, don't be afraid to like try some stuff and see what happens. I think about when I went to see my friend, Jason Moore mix train, he's been mixing train for like eight years. And, uh, I go out and, Pat, for the least ring of train, he's like notoriously far off his mic when he's singing. And and, and Jason has to do it. He has this very finely tuned vocal chain that took him, you know, close to a decade to get Pat to sound really good live. And he had a Wave C6. And he said, yeah, I only use the two parametric bands. I said, oh, you should try the F6 because it's just like a bunch of the parametric bands. He goes, oh, that's cool. And the next night he texts me a picture of Pat's vocal chain with an F6 in it. And I'm like, dude, this guy is not scared to get in there and and maybe make a potential improvement. You know what I mean? And so, like, I learned a lot from that, which is like, you know, you're not going to turn into a pillar of salt. It might not work. It's okay. You can just put it back afterwards. Um, so <laughs> that that kind of spirit of experimentation um, and not being not being too scared is something that that I've I've taken, and I something that I try to you know engender in other people as well. Um, all right. So I think this will be easy because you guys are both in the same place. But 
for all coming down to the city and you're going to take us out uh, to eat. Where are we going? So there's, there's a new place on 49th or 50th and 9th or 10th called Omakase by Karami, which it, it, you haven't been here yet. I haven't been there yet. It's, it's on my list. Okay. So it, it just opened like two weeks ago and, and I haven't been to Japan yet. It's high on my list and every, all of your other guests talk about how, how we all need to go to Japan and eat the food there. This is the best sushi I've ever had. Uh, and it is, it's a small place and very soon... Uh, I think it'll be impossible to get a uh, a reservation there. So check it out while you can if you like sushi. Uh, omakase by Karami. Hey, Chris, Chris Leonard, out there. What's the coolest thing with an arm's reach, Chris Leonard? Uh, Skylar <laughs> Hope. It's a baby. Aww. Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours old. Skylar Brian. Aww. Welcome to the show, sweetheart. First baby we've had on the show, I think. Huh. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, that'd be me, but yeah. okay. like chronologically. Yeah. 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 That's true. First present, baby. Yeah. Um, so, um, all right, Chris, you wanna you wanna throw your your money question out there, buddy? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Mike first. Uh, so Mike, uh, if you could define your legacy or how you'd want to be known, how would you define it? Ooh, great question. If I could define my legacy, how would I define it? Um, I would define it as Someone who produces really high quality work, but is also fun to hang out with, (laughs) you know, somebody who you don't mind working with, but everybody knows we're all bringing our A game, you know, everybody's doing the best job they can, myself included, you know, but just, just creating a community where everybody can do amazing work, but we all like each other and we all can laugh and it's all good, but the quality never dips. Like, uh, you know, and I've been tested on this because I've worked with some people who I enjoy hanging out with, but their work isn't necessarily up to the standard that I hold myself. Well, not hold myself to, but, but hold what I think the standard should be uh, of work, you know? Um, and, and I've been tested on that a few different times and, and I definitely, you know, uh, the quality of work definitely wins, you know, I, I'd rather, you know, but at the same time, I think, I think that would be my legacy is just, if, if I could define it, you know, uh, working or, you know, yeah. I, I think I'd like to be somebody who helped. Uh, I think for a performer or for a director, maybe, maybe I'd like, I mean, it's too early to think about legacy, right? But maybe I'd like to be somebody who helped them with their show. Or if it's somebody else in the industry, you know, maybe I helped them find a more efficient way to think about cable. Or if it's somebody who's new to the industry or somebody new to the community, maybe I, I'd, I'd like to be somebody who helped. It's either that or I'd like to be somebody who got a really good rack tom sound on one show one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, see, I, you, you That's said my something. second choice. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't think it's, and Kevin nodded this, I don't think it's too um, too young to think of your legacy. In fact, that's actually kind of why I started asking this. It's like I started to, there's two ways, right? And, and that's why I kind of throw it up as like legacy versus way you want to be known. There's kind of two different things. I mean, how you want to be known as people and then maybe what's maybe a legacy project or product or thing that we accomplished or whatever. And so, um, and 
you know, embarking on like my other side project with how it got loud. That's what got me thinking about it. I was like, hey, I, I, I'm looking to try to make a lofty goal here. The ultimate history of live sound. I know it's something that'll take me a lifetime to make. In other words, if that's going to be my legacy, I'm thinking about this now that like 20, 30 years from now, I'm still going to be working on this and working towards that legacy. Uh, will I ever reach it? Who knows? But so no, anyone, I, I would say it's not too early to think about that. I think it's so, there's two sides of it, how you want to be known as a person and then maybe something you leave behind. And some people, they might not care what they leave behind. Um, and that's okay too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think, oh. you know, right. You, you do that thing where you like, you whiteboard things, right. You throw it up on the whiteboard and say, you're going to do it, you know? So I, I know it makes perfect sense. I also think it works well as a, as, as a threat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, you're that's... right. I mean, and I think, I think that's the fun thing that we all have to figure out is what motivates you. You know what I mean? Everybody has a different motivation. Everybody has a different thing. And that uh, totally not about legacy, but that's, that's a fun little challenge for me is finding, you know, cause we, we get lucky and we get to work with a bunch of different people all the time and everybody cares about a different thing a lot. So it's fun. It's fun to get to find how everybody can get motivated to get going. Yeah. Kevin responds to fear mostly. Um, yeah. So. Hey. <laughs> or cheese. Got it. So much fear. Yeah, that's true. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, sharing your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure uh, my time of bothering you for theatrical sound advice is coming to a middle. Um, <laughs> and hopefully everyone will tune in next week where we will hopefully not be recording from hospital. Uh, take care, everybody. <laughs> yes, sir. Awesome.